This is a person I admire greatly. He has tremendous energy. He is extremely uplifting. The kind of person you absolutely want to roll with, and I could not be more pleased with this conversation. And I've got a new brother in this pursuit of reinvention and transformation. He's a speaker, an author, a performance expert. He is Alan Stein Jr., and he's coming at you right now. Welcome to Season 15 of the Raise Your Game Show. What's up, y'all? I'm Alan Stein Jr., and I really appreciate you tuning in to today's show. Whether on page, on stage, or on the mic, I only have one goal, and that's to add as much value to you as I possibly can. See, if you're listening to this right now, then I know you're looking to improve. You're looking to grow. You're looking to develop. You're looking to evolve. You're looking for an edge. And ultimately, that's why I do this show, to give you an edge. And we're now in our 15th season, and every previous season has had a different flow, a different format, and a different theme. If you're new to the show, I recommend you make the time to check out previous seasons and see which ones resonate most strongly. And if you're a longtime listener, thanks so much for your support and loyalty. This season is all about revisiting my favorite conversations with my favorite podcast host from when I was a guest on their shows. You see, I've had the great fortune to be a guest on almost 400 podcasts in the past six years, and this season will highlight the ones I feel are most impactful. In each of these conversations, you'll learn a little bit more about me, my journey, my perspective, my philosophy, and my approach. These episodes will be full of practical lessons to level up your habits, mindset, focus, and self-awareness. All right, let's get on with today's featured conversation. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Jeremy Stein, Alan's younger brother, digital ninja, and the producer of this podcast, along with many others. Alan's too busy meditating or drinking athletic greens, doing cold plunges. I don't know what he does, but uh, he was too busy to record this, so he asked me to step in. 2023 was quite a year, and this marks the final episode of the year and the final episode of season 15. Alan and I will be retooling and preparing to launch season 16 with an entirely new format in early January, so stay tuned. In the meantime, here are our favorite questions and answers from this past season. We hope you enjoy, appreciate you listening, and look forward to serving you in 2024. How is life for you kind of traveling, being an author, speaking for these huge corporations? How's that going? Life is fantastic. At 46 years old, life has never been better. I always like to say that, that I'm not speaking from a place of mastery on anything that I share on page or anything that I share on stage. Uh, these are all things that, that I'm still challenged by, I'm still struggling with, but I'm making progress and I'm proud of that progress. I'm proud of the path that I'm on uh, and I'm slowly starting to figure some things out that work well for me. And um, one of the things that I said on Ed's show that I've gotten the most feedback from was the mantra that I live by, which is a candle loses nothing by lighting another candle. And that's ultimately how I view my work. Uh, is trying to help people light their candles, but I'm doing it through the things that have been challenging me for my entire life. So I'm so glad that it resonates with you guys. I'm so glad that Ed show brought us together. I'm thankful to be here. Uh, and every time I have an opportunity to share, whether it's on stage or whether it's an intimate setting like this for a podcast, I, I relish the opportunity to talk about things I'm passionate about. How do we help people reset their psychology, reset their mindset and get back to that. Like I am unstoppable. The market is the market. Yes. There's nothing I can do about that, but I can 
be my best self every single day. How do we do that? The very first thing I say is folks need to give themselves a little bit of grace and a little bit of space to feel how they're feeling. And I have nothing but massive empathy and compassion for anyone that feels stuck, that feels stoppable, that mm -hmm. feels like I'm a little bit less than where I'd like to be. Yeah. So I always start with that. So how, how, when you get to see this before and after shot, how did you piece together and connect the dots on what it takes to become an elite level athlete? And then take that obviously into the business world. Well, if we, yeah. Obviously, in the sports world, you have to have a certain level of, of natural talent. You have to have certain, at least to play in the NBA, generally speaking. So you've got the raw materials. Once that's off the table, then there's other traits that I can look back and say, yeah, I noticed those things when these kids were 14 and 15 years old. So uh, I'm not surprised that they've been able to matriculate up to the highest levels. Uh, some of those things are a tremendous respect for the basics. Like they don't try to skip steps. And that's really rare as you can appreciate with 14 and 15 year old males, you know, that you're watching your idols on TV play the game and they make an amazing move. So of course you want to be able to emulate that, but to have the discipline to actually get in the gym and work on the basic fundamentals that lead up to being able to do that move uh, is one thing that separates those guys. Uh, basketball in particular, they just love to play. You know, one of the hardest parts about my career early was convincing basketball players that they needed to do this stuff. Basketball players, they're usually allergic to weights. Like they don't <laughs> want to be around that stuff. They want to be in the gym playing five on five, or they want to be in the gym putting up shots. They don't want to do this stuff. So part of where I think really helped me as a coach was learning how to speak their language and be able to translate to them that yes, doing this stuff will allow you to be on the court longer for a longer career. And it will allow you to do those things at a higher level. What's the difference between a strength and conditioning coach, a performance coach, and a mental performance coach? I think there's so many different coaches around people me included, get very confused. So. For sure. So most people are familiar with what would be a basketball coach or a skills coach. Well, when I got in high school and college, I started to develop an equal affinity for the fitness side, mm -hmm. for strength, conditioning, improving athleticism. Uh, so I started as a strength and conditioning coach. Uh, and then as that started to grow, I realized that what I did was more than just help someone get stronger and get in good shape. So that, that title was kind of insufficient. And what I was trying to do was help people improve their overall performance on the court. So it kind of just morphed into being what I call a performance coach, uh, which is how most of the people in the space right. refer to it now. How in the world do you go so fast from being one of the top performance coaches in the world and saying, you know what, I want to get into the corporate space what is that burn that caused you to be just intentional in the daily habits to do this corporately as you did when you were in the sports world? Well, you know, as you know, these things have such high utility. Uh, so I can take everything that I learned through the game of basketball and everything that it took to get to the top of basketball from a training standpoint and then apply that to the corporate speaking. And of course, with a learning curve, you know, it took me three times as long to build my basketball business because I had to learn a lot of things the hard way. Uh, and thankfully, uh, I've been very blessed that even though I make tons of mistakes, I don't often make them twice. So I, I was able to learn from a lot of the mistakes I made in basketball training and not step on those landmines uh, in the corporate world. Uh, and then of course, you know, people like yourself that, that have knocked down doors and created opportunities and mentored and, and helped show me the way, you know, I don't think any of us get anywhere by ourselves. Uh, so your learning curve of what it took in 14 years, you've been kind enough to pay that forward and, and share some things with me that, again, allowed me to sidestep some pitfalls, which will then make it happen quicker. And like yourself, 
Now I'm a big believer in paying that forward to others. Uh, so whether it's a, a young and up and coming strength and conditioning coach or someone that also wants to be a corporate speaker, you know, I do my best to go out of my way to share things with them so that they can get there even faster uh, than I have. And, and I know you're big into quotes and to sayings and, yep. and one that I think uh, epitomizes the coaching world is that a candle loses nothing by lighting another candle. And it's not a cutthroat Ooh. industry, you know. Me, you lighting my candle doesn't take anything away from yours. In fact, I think it makes yours shine brighter when you help someone like myself. And then I go and do the same thing for others. So uh, that, that part's been, it's been fun. And it's kind of like a, a Rubik's Cube to figure out, all right, what lessons can I pull from the game of basketball and how can I apply them to my life now? And the reason I love it is I try to see how those apply in business, in speaking, in parenting, uh, in social media. I mean, any area of my life that I want to have high performance, I can draw on these lessons from people that I've learned. You've got to be on the largest stage. So whatever the largest stage means to you, would you rather have to hit a free throw, a 30-yard field goal, you got to get on base and there's a 2-1 count, or you got to make a six-foot putt? But it was because, look, he's a basketball guy, so we've got we've to even elevate that stage. Okay. So it's got to be in the finals, game seven. Yeah, like whatever you can imagine. It's got to be finals, game seven. Tied up. It's tied up. No, no, no. How about this? It's not tied up. You're only sending it to overtime. Uh, you miss it, you lose. Yes, even better. Because if you miss it and you're tied up, there's like no harm, no foul. You're yeah. down by one. All right, and you've well, got 2-1 count, got to get on base, World Series. Right, free throw down by one. Hockey, hockey. How? Oh, uh, no, no. Soccer was you got to hit a penalty kick in the in the finals of the World Cup, make a six foot putt at the Masters to win it, or uh, what was the other? Or uh, no, I think that was it. It was, it was field, oh, goal. field goal. It was, uh, free throw. Yeah. It was field goal, kick, three throw, penalty kick, putt. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, gotta choose one. <laughs> Based on my background, I would automatically take the, the free throw because it's the only of those five that I have any decent level of competence. But but let me – I want to unpack this because I love – I think this yeah. is a brilliant question. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the difference between an open loop and a closed loop skill. Uh, okay. An open loop skill means the environment is changing and you have other factors to depend on. A closed loop skill means that basically it's preset and, and it's it's up to you to start and stop and perform the skill. Generally speaking, closed loop skills are easier because you don't have anything else to worry about. So, yes, I realize the fans behind the basket can be waving their hands, but right. the basket is the same height. The free throw line is the same distance. The ball is the same size and weight. Yeah. Me shooting a free throw to, to tie the game or lose uh, is no different than if I was doing that in a gym by myself. So I have a little bit more control over my own destiny. Same thing in theory with a golf putt. Um, the others, now I'm required to hit a pitch thrown by someone else, yep. or I need yeah. to be able to pick a field goal based on someone else snapping it and catching it and making sure the, the laces are out. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. there's, there's other Einhorn. Einhorn is Finkel. Einhorn is Finkel, exactly. <laughs> now there's a great reference right there. <laughs> uh, and, and even, even you know, if I'm trying to throw a touchdown or anything, I'm dependent on others um, so I'll always take the closed loop skill if you're asking what it is that I need to do on a bigger level. Yeah. If you're asking me personally, what I think the hardest skill in sports is, it would be hitting a curveball. Oh, I've never absolutely. Baseball. No. I think I hitting so. a 90 mile an hour curveball 
might be the hardest skill in all of sports. Uh, and I say that with massive respect to every sport. And and don't even get me started on hockey because I can't even skate. So that's I would right. yeah, that's, <laughs> I'd be out on that one. Upright. So, um, yeah. So I'll take free throw for myself. But I would even take putt as number two just because yeah. I have more control over that. How do I get a job doing what I love to do? You love what you do. You don't work a day in your life. Absolutely. How did you get to do what you love to do? Well, thankfully, I was given that advice very early, which is find what you love and find what you're good at and then find where those two things intersect. And that's kind of the sweet spot where you want to live. And for me, it had always been basketball. Uh, and still to this day is one of the strongest passions I have. Uh, so to be able to make my living as a basketball performance coach was amazing. You know, young When I was younger in my career, it was more about can I get players faster and stronger? As I got older, I saw myself more as a role model and a mentor, and can I actually teach them leadership and, and habits and accountability? So things bigger than the game, but that's why the game's been so good to me. It's, it's been a platform for me to, to teach life lessons, which I think is more important. Yes. Really, the two questions we should ask any athlete or, you know, I want to hear these, is I've got like, four. You have four? Yes, that I, tell, I ask my kids all the time, yeah. but I want to hear what yours well, are. Well, I think really the two things are, did you do your best? Mm-hmm, that was one of them. And did you learn? I love it. And like, and like, should also probably, did you enjoy yourself? You know, yeah, like okay. Well, then you're, yeah, you've got one. my list. So I've got eight-year-old twin sons and a six-year-old yeah. daughter. My four rules are one, make sure you listen to your coaches. Mm-hmm. Two, make sure you're a good teammate, which at their age, it's kind of like, hey, make somebody else smile, give somebody a high five. Three, did you have fun? Mm-hmm. And four, did you give your best effort? As long as you do those four things, I'll keep paying for it. I'll keep Ubering you there. I'll keep doing everything I can to support you. If you're not going to do those four things, yeah. then, then there's no point in doing this. Because most meetings, I've noticed, usually do the opposite. And when you said they don't have clear roles, they have chaotic meetings, what did you mean? That's exactly what I meant. I I wish I could find a statistic on how much time is actually wasted in meetings. I like statistics. I know you do. And and there's just too many meetings in general. I mean, some people hold meetings to plan the next meeting. And it's like, there has to be something more efficient that we could be doing. And, and, you know, I pull a page out of my basketball uh, playbook, you know, a, a coach at the beginning of a game is only given a finite number of timeouts. And those timeouts are brief by design, They're either 30 or 90 seconds. So uh, they don't have the luxury of calling a timeout whenever they want or holding a meeting with the team whenever they feel like it. You only get a few of them, so you have to use them wisely. And you have to be brief by design because that's how long the timeouts are. And you best share something with your team that's going to put them back out on the court, you know, uh, more apt to succeed. And I think businesses should follow a similar model. We feel like the the role of a leader is really to be more coach or maybe even GM than it is to be the star player. Is that your experience as well? Absolutely. Uh, I'm not very musically inclined, but I kind of equate it to being the conductor of the orchestra. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's the conductor's job is to get everybody to play their instrument to the best of their ability. And when done and, and blended beautifully, you know, you, you get harmony and you get some nice music. And that's ultimately what a conductor's job is. And I view the same thing as a leader, uh, a leader or a coach, or really you could fill in any word there, parent, teacher, manager, director, supervisor, it's your job to find the strengths of each person on your team, mm. put them in the right position where they can maximize those strengths and make a maximum contribution to everyone else. And if everyone is doing that uh, in alignment with the vision or the North Star that the leader has set, that's when you have an extraordinary team. I think there's a thing in leadership that's leadership fatigue. We get tired of saying the same things over and over again, even though we should. I think in business and life, there's just a fatigue of the mundane, of doing the things that actually work, and we move away from them. And sometimes the greatest people in the world just don't 
allow themselves to suffer from the fatigue of the repetition. Yeah. True? Abs- absolutely. And yeah. you hit the nail on the head. That's incredibly insightful. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we can readily acknowledge that the basics, if you allow them to, can be monotonous, mm-hmm. can be mundane, and can get boring mm-hmm. unless you have that type of approach to them. And yeah. even if you don't love doing the basics, you need to love what the basics produce for you, so which is basically creating that foundation to which the rest of the house is built. Yeah. And guys like Kobe, um, they never leave them. And that's that's the key. And mm-hmm. the, the beautiful part is it's not saying that you don't also graduate to do more advanced techniques and mm-hmm. so forth. It says you never leave the basics. Stress is very clearly the silent killer. How would you define stress or better yet, what is the best definition of stress you've ever heard? Modern day philosopher Eckhart Tolle gave what I think is the best definition of stress. And that is the desire for things to be different than they are in the present moment. It's actually denying reality. It's saying, I don't want things going on the way they're going on. And it's our resistance to the external world that actually heightens our stress. On some level, when you can learn to accept and surrender that what's happening is what's happening, it's a way to lower stress. Now, this doesn't mean that you like or prefer what is happening. It simply means you're not trying to fight against it because fighting against reality is a fight you will lose 100% of the time. And I think the problem is people waste so much time. Their habits are like time wasters. And that's something that a lot of people deal with. They scroll on social media, they take too long to drive somewhere, whatever the case may be. So what would you say to these people that maybe have habits in their day that they need to fix? Maybe they don't even realize it, that are just wasting their time and they can use their time to help reach their goal. I love the direction you're going. I, I want to share something real quick. And okay. then if this doesn't answer the question for you, then, then just pull on that thread a little bit okay. more. So for context, uh, I'm a very proud father of three. I have 13-year-old twin sons who just started eighth grade, and I have an 11-year-old daughter who just started sixth grade. Um, and all three of them are, are active youth basketball players. All three of my children have told me that they have the goal of playing college basketball. They've told me this on numerous occasions, and this isn't something that that I've kind of you know led the witness and told them that they need to pursue. It's something that they said they want to do. Now, I've asked for their permission for me to hold them accountable to doing what it takes to play college basketball. I know it from my personal experience because I've played, and I know it because I've worked with hundreds of players who have played college basketball. And, and I feel as their father, it's my job to help lay out the blueprint and be the guide to what that would take. And we had this early conversation prior to the summer. Um, fast forward a few months, and now that summer's over and school has started, um, I had to recalibrate the conversation with them. And, and, and it basically went like this. It said, I told my three kids, when, when folks ask me about you guys playing basketball, here's what I tell them. And I, and I told my children, I want you to tell me if, if this is accurate. I tell them that you guys really like playing basketball, but you don't love basketball. Like when you play, you have fun and, and, and you're, you're good at it, but you're not obsessed with being the best players that you're capable of. And, and, and I told them, I firmly believe that in order for you guys to play college basketball, you're going to have to make more of a commitment to the game. You know, you're going to have to work on your game every single day. You're going to have to work on your fitness and your strength and your, your flexibility and mobility and coordination. You know, you're going to have to work on all of the intangibles. And I said this with a huge smile and all the love in my heart, because I love my kids very much. I said, what you guys are currently doing will not be good enough to play college basketball. 
And I said, I don't say that to diminish you. And I certainly don't say that to discourage you. I say that because I'm trying to hold up the mirror that you understand that the commitment you are currently making is not going to be good enough to play college basketball. So you need to change one of two things. You either need to change your goal and say, I don't want to play college basketball. I just want to play for fun because I enjoy the game. I enjoy being with my friends, you know, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, I, I love my kids unconditionally, no matter what they choose, but there's nothing wrong with them playing basketball kind of as something fun to do and as a hobby and, and getting rid of the goal of playing in college. Or they have to change their commitment level. If they decide they want to keep the goal of playing in college, then they need to up their commitment level. They need to start working on their game every day. They need to have the discipline to get up in the morning and make a hundred shots before school starts and then make another hundred shots after school before their evening practice. And of course, keep up with their schoolwork and all of their other responsibilities. So um, it will be interesting to see what each of them chooses. Um, I, I really made sure that they understood that there is no pressure for me as their father whatsoever. I love them no matter what, and I just want them to be happy. But as their father, I'm not going to let them straddle in between. I'm not going to let them say they want to be college players, but then have very mediocre commitment and work habits. So one of those two things needs to change. And it was a very positive uh, conversation. I mean, it ended with smiles and hugs and high fives. And it will be interesting to see over the next three, four, six months um, what each of them chooses to do. This is something that I was kind of picking up in Robert Cialdini's book, Influence, where, you know, he talks about, you know, you don't just give and say, oh, no worries, right? There's an expectation of return. How do you present that uh, desire or demand for reciprocity of trust? Is it a directly stated thing or? Well, in my opinion, this is just my framework. I believe every human being walking the earth uh, deserves my initial respect. Now, they may do something to lose it just like trust. They may do something to lose my trust, but I don't feel anyone needs to earn my respect from the get-go. I'm going to give that to them just because I believe that's, that's the way that I want to live my life. And I'm going to give everyone the benefit of the doubt that they're doing the best they can with the tools that they have. You know, even when someone says something boneheaded or, or does something that's completely contradictory to what I would do, I have an appreciation that they're still doing the best they can with the framework in which they see the world. So I do my best not to judge and I try to lean in with curiosity and fascination, but I, I believe in giving respect, but at the same time, I, I care enough about myself that, that I won't let someone disrespect me. You know, I, I want to make sure that, that if I'm going to give others my respect, that they need to respect me and respect my boundaries and respect my beliefs and respect my approaches. Doesn't mean they have to agree with them. And I have no problem with varying opinions. You know, I'll make a post on social. In fact, I just did this recently. I made a post on social about one of my parenting beliefs is that I never let my children win at anything. Like I try and beat them in everything that we do. And I had a few people say, you know, that they don't believe in that, that they have a different framework. And I said, that's absolutely cool with me. Like, I don't expect everyone to see the world the way that I do. And I certainly don't expect everyone to parent the way that I do. Everyone needs to find the right framework and operating system for themselves and do what's best for them. And, and I think that's something that, that tends to be eroding in our culture and society today, especially online, is we seem to lack the ability to have civil discourse and passionate conversations with people that disagree with us. Like it doesn't hurt my feelings at all if someone else chooses to let their kids win when they play games. Like I'll sleep fine at night. That's totally cool. 
but I do want to make sure that people have very strong convictions about what they believe in. And I just love having, you know, robust discussions, even if people disagree with me. When I say peak performance, what comes to your mind, brother? What, what just immediately kind of hits you? Well, the first thing is, is defining performance, because it's been my experience that when most people hear the word performance, they think of athletics, uh, they think of the arts, you know, an actor or a musician, you know, they think of it as being something rather finite and specific, where I have a much broader viewpoint where I believe we're performing in every area of our life at all times. I mean, I perform as a father, I perform as a friend. I perform as a podcast guest. I perform as an author, you know, and, and they're not necessarily performances, but but that's what it is that I'm trying to improve. I mean, I'm when I'm looking to make these adjustments and these tweaks in my life, it's so that I can level up in all of the areas of my life, not just on stage or on page, but how I show up to everyone else and, and everything else around me. So um, when I talk, think about peak performance, it's about kind of raising not just the ceiling of what we're capable of, but slowly raising the floor so that we perform more consistently in the areas that, that are most important to us. And, and very similar to you, uh, it's something I'm fascinated with. It's, it's something I'm always tinkering with on my own. You know, I'm, I'm always tinkering with my morning and evening routine. I'm, I'm always reading, watching, and listening to new ideas and, and new concepts that, and then trying them out and see if they're the right fit for me. So yeah, I've been enthralled uh, and mesmerized by, I guess, what we'll call the, the self-development space or personal development space for my entire life. And it, it really energizes me. And I'm, I'm very thankful to be a part of it now, kind of on the contribution side. Were you the one who said, I'm going to put this kid with a mentor, like you, you kind of have different levels of mentorship, like when you're setting someone up for success, uh, like putting him with this super hardworking kid as his roommate. Was that, was that your idea or part of it? Yeah, well, mentorship is huge. I mean, I'm, I'm a huge believer in mentorship. I'm a huge believer in, in coaching, you know, and I'm, I come from the school of thought that everybody needs a coach, mm -hmm. no matter your age, no matter your industry, no matter your business everybody needs a coach because you know coaches motivate and inspire uh, they teach they hold you accountable they push you they challenge you and we all need that i mean the first thing i did when i decided to become a, a corporate keynote speaker was hire a speaking coach mm -hmm. the first thing i did when i decided to write my first book was hire a writing coach when i found myself not making great financial decisions <laughs> in my life i hired what i call my mo <clears throat> my money coach you know basically a wealth advisor so i'm I'm a big believer in that coaching, and I always tried to plant those seeds very early with, with everyone that I've I worked with. Mm -hmm. Who instilled that in you? My parents, for sure. So both of my parents were elementary educators. My mom was a first grade teacher for 30 years. Uh, my father started as an elementary school teacher and then worked his way up to administration and being a principal. So mm -hmm. I've always had a very strong respect and appreciation for teaching and coaching and mentors. And, and that's what I strive to be in my own life. You know, there's, there's lots of folks that would like to follow the path that I've already blazed and I wanna do everything I can to, to help you know, share ideas and concepts and strategies with them. And then I still lean heavily on a series of mentors and coaches because I'm not anywhere close to getting where I'd like to be. <laughs> with all of the work you've done across businesses and your keynote speaking through all of the you know, intimate conversations you've had with businesses and large you know, interactions with audiences, what, what is kind of the common theme you see around impact through leadership? And what are you telling uh, listeners today is the most key thing to make impact through leadership? I'm a huge believer in the, the foundational mantra of transformational leadership, which is 
intentionally choosing to see the world through the lens of it's not about me, it's about you. I think the best and most effective and most impactful leaders on the planet just naturally value and respect and appreciate everybody else's goals, everybody else's dreams, the, the contributions that others want to make. So they look through the lens of it's not about me, it's about you. And they, they do that with their spouses and their children and their significant others and friends. They do that with those on their team, their colleagues and their coworkers. Uh, they do that with those that they serve, uh, their customers and their clients and their members. They, they constantly place a major emphasis on what it is that the other person is looking to achieve and looking to do. And, and this doesn't mean that they don't value themselves, uh, that they don't emphasize and prioritize their own self-care and fill their own bucket. It just means they do that for others to the same degree that they do that for themselves. And it's been my experience that when you shift your focus off of what you want from people and you shift it onto what you want for people, you become the most magnetic leader in any room. What is the magic there when a coach cannot play good as golf as Tiger Woods, but Tiger trusts the coach? What's the dynamic there? Coach K, who I know we share an affinity yes. for, yes. Greg Popovich, Bill Belichick, Phil Jackson, um, they all were able to play at a certain level, but certainly not right. at the level no. of the players that they coach. So, so I think that's a huge mistake that someone would make in saying that a qualifier for a coach is that they need to have played at that high level because playing at a high level and coaching at a high level are completely different skill sets. So the question I usually open with is, did you envision early on that you would be where you are right now? No, I never would have envisioned that I was going to be a professional keynote speaker. Um, but I absolutely envisioned doing something that I found meaningful, doing something that I felt was in service of others, and doing something that I was really passionate about. And, and that's kind of been my North Star um, ever since I've, I, I left college. So I'm thankful that my, my current vocation uh, checks all three of those boxes. And I don't know exactly where I'll be or what I'll be doing 5, 10, 25, 30 years from now, but I can promise you it will still check those three boxes. Well, that's it for this episode. I hope this conversation helped you raise your game. If you're interested in learning how I can deliver messages like this to your team or at your next event, please visit allensteinjr.com and hit the contact tab in the upper right corner. 